recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 18 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your co-host Cam McMurchy along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at duntroonllp.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter, and you can find that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and you can follow us on social media as well. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our account name is PR Law Podcast, all one word, PR Law Podcast. Uh, And you can find us on YouTube and subscribe and listen to the show that way. And if you could support us on Patreon, that would be fantastic. You can find that through our website at prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. And we can take your questions as well if you post them on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod, PRLawPod. We have all kinds of stuff coming up in the show today. Ewan, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm doing well, Kim. Things things back to normal? (laughs) Not that That's well. Like crazy. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, it's it, it it's normal, but it's the new normal, right? This is this is the thing. It's not the old normal. Well, we have it's NHL hockey back, you and and, uh, and NBA basketball. The Raptors are back in it too. It's kind of it's kind of odd seeing live sports again. Yeah, that that that's true. And, and I'm 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 somewhat fixed. I don't know about you. I'm a little bit fixated by sort of the the cutouts, the cutout fans that they have. I, I was watching uh, the Kansas City Royals play the other day and saw that in the in the background there was uh, Bo Jackson in his <laughs> Kansas City Royals uniform. There was also Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know baseball's been doing that. I mean, uh, but it is different. The sports are, are, are approaching a different way. Like I did see a couple of the hockey games last week and they've covered the seats with tarps and they've put up additional lights and displays and like ways trying to cover it up, but it still just doesn't look right. It still just seems very odd. And it does take a lot of the emotion away without fans there. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, I don't know if you saw the, there, there was a, a Joey Votto um, press conference that was sort of circulating on Twitter. Um, and I guess he was talking about all of the cutouts and he said, uh, you know, he had this whole bit. He's like, so those are real people, right? I mean, they're not real people, but you know, they're, they're pictures of real people, right? And of course somebody said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, does that mean I could basically just have like a whole section of my face? And somebody <laughs> said, yeah, I guess you could probably do that. I was like, what would that cost? <laughs> I don't know if he did it, but uh, apparently, yeah, he was, he was contemplating just buying an entire section of seats with faces of, of himself, but himself. <laughs> well, I mean, it was kind of nice for sports to come back because it's a distraction because things just seem to keep getting worse. You and I, I don't know what's up with 2020. I can't believe we're just past halfway, uh, the way things are going, but the U S and China relationship got even worse this week. Uh, the U S announced that they're going to be blocking TikTok, the very popular social media app in the U S we've talked about it on this show. Um, you know, they do a great job, uh, with that app. And, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. government is basically forcing a sale of TikTok um, and Microsoft looks very interested in it. But it broke very recently that Twitter itself is also looking at it. 
I have no idea how Twitter is going to come up with the money to buy TikTok because I think it's far beyond Twitter's capability to purchase. Um, but then the second one is is an executive order that could potentially ban WeChat, which is a really, really important app uh, among Chinese people in the United States. And again, disclaimer that I do work for Tencent. So obviously for me, that was uh, a very busy, busy, busy week dealing with some of these these issues. But one thing's clear, Ewan, the U.S.-China relationship seems to be getting worse and um, it's going into some pretty, pretty scary areas, I think, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, I read the executive order. And as a lawyer, I mean, I have to say, I I don't even I'm, I don't know what is going on in, in, in the White House. I don't know who it was who sat down and crafted that language. But I thought uh, the the drafting of the executive order, if I may say so, was absolutely horrible. It really was not clear it reinforced again once again all those terrible awful stereotypes of of lawyers of just you know throwing in nonsensical language that you know normal human beings can't really uh get through or or comprehend which is entirely contrary to what our jobs are um yeah i just thought it was dreadful and i expect we're probably going to have to get some some clarification around that from the white house Yeah, it has been a tool of the White House ever since the president was elected. Actually, you know, the executive order was used a lot by President Obama and President Bush, President Clinton before. Um, But in these cases, you're right. Some of the language is just very bizarre and unclear. It looks quite rushed. And um, there have been other cases this year. I mean, President Trump had a um, an executive order that was looking at pharmaceutical prices. And, you know, it was announced the White House announced the executive order, but never never showed the actual text of the order. Uh, But through the announcement, it brought the pharmaceutical companies together to talk and a resolution was found. And actually the text was never released. (laughs) So, um, you know, it is kind of a, we're in a, we're in a new era with this president. So it's, it's, it's kind of unpredictable. Last thing on, on COVID-19, um, I, you know that, you know, we got bad here again in Hong Kong, but I think over the last seven days, we've just hit the seventh day in a row, or at least the new cases are now under 100 per day. So that is some progress. It's slow. We've seen a lot more deaths now uh, happening. We had, uh, I believe, three of them yesterday. Again, all elderly people um, at this point. But um, even though it's much worse than it's been most of the time, at least we're again headed in the right direction. So that's a bit of a relief. And I, I hear it's, I know in British Columbia and Canada, it's, it was going back up again and there were more people in the ICU. I don't know how it is where you are or how Canada is as a whole, but is it at least still going in the right direction? Oh yeah, yeah, numbers numbers continue to come down here in Ontario, which is you know again fantastic. Um I I hope it continues to do so. I, you know, we're we still have some pretty strict measures across the province in terms of social distancing and mandatory masks. Um, and, and there doesn't really seem to be any indication that those policies are going to be removed um, or cease anytime soon. So, yeah, I mean, we're we're hopeful. I think the big test and this is going to be the big test for a lot of countries around the world is when children start going back to school and how different countries are are managing that. And, uh, you know, that's. That's as a parent. That's something that's really, really kind of scary, um, and I'm sure it's scary for a lot of parents out there. And you know, there's there's just a lot of a lot of risk and a lot of anxiety tied up around that issue. Mm-hmm. 
Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, Ewan, what's up? Yeah, so I wanted to talk this week, Cam, about, um, you know, an issue that it popped up a bunch of times for me this week. I had a, a number of calls from from clients and prospective clients, um, predominantly employees who are going back to work. And they're sort of being faced with situations where their employer isn't in a position to have them return um, doing what they were doing before because those jobs no longer exist because they've had to cut back a lot of employees given everything that's gone on. Um, and they're eliminating entire departments in some cases. So, you know, they're, they're kind of offering employees new positions because their old positions have been eliminated. And that raises this question and, and legal principle of constructive dismissal. And I know we've, <clears throat> we've, we've sort of alluded to it a few times on the show and, and sort of briefly, touched on it, but I kind of wanted to try and give some clarity, hopefully in terms of what constructive dismissal is and, um, how to sort of address it if, if it comes up. So constructive, so, sorry. So contra- constructive dismissal really is sort of mm-hmm. a, a justified, uh, dismissal of an employee, something that has happened or something the employee has done. Would that be fair to say? I'll let you define it, but that's my impression. <laughs> well, no, Cam, not exactly. Okay. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> so constructive dismissal arises when the the employer either substantially, well, substantially and unilaterally alters a fundamental term of the employment contract. Okay. And it's altered so fundamentally um, to the extent that an employee can view the employer's conduct uh, as a termination. And they can then claim wrongful dismissal. So more specifically, you know, these substantial changes are, are usually things like lowering an employee's compensation, changing their hours of work, uh, demoting them in some way, altering their, their reporting structure or their job description or the working conditions, uh, relocating the employee, uh, these sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. And, when that fundamental alteration occurs from the employee's perspective, it's effectively the same thing as your employer saying, I'm firing you for the simple reason that you didn't contract with the employer to work on the terms as they're being modified. So, you know, to give you a really, really sort of extreme, obvious example, this would be, you know, if you're say, uh, you know, a, a senior manager at a large company and you're called into a meeting Monday morning with an HR rep and, and the CEO of the company. And you sit down and they advise you that starting today, um, your position's been eliminated because of COVID. And they don't have any managerial positions paying you your six-figure salary. And all they have available is a janitorial position at minimum wage. Uh, and they want you to start right away. Well, obviously, that would constitute a fundamental alteration of the employment relationship, right? I mean, you're dramatically reducing the employee's salary. 
Um, you're changing the reporting structure. You're changing the title. You're most likely changing the hours that they're going to work. Everything. Um, and it's so fundamental that it's effectively the same thing as sitting that employee down and saying, we're firing you. Mm-hmm. Which is probably what they are trying to do when they do something like that. Uh, they expect well, you to yeah, leave. Well, yeah, sometimes. But, you know, the reason, I, the reason I bring this up and wanted to discuss this this week, Cam, is because, you know, employers are having to make some very difficult decisions given what's going on. You know, this isn't, this isn't just about employers being, you know, cruel and disrespectful to their employees. I mean, uh, under the circumstances, quite the contrary, right? Where you have companies that are having to eliminate entire divisions um, to try and stay afloat and they want to try and keep employees around. So, you know, you're getting into some really, really questionable legal grounds here um, in terms of if you are making those fundamental alterations, under normal circumstances, they would be considered a constructive dismissal and those employees would be within their rights to sue for wrongful dismissal. And by suing for wrongful dismissal, what I mean is suing for reasonable notice of the termination of their employment. But how are courts going to interpret this, these sorts of decisions from the employer's perspective now? And, and really, we don't know. We still don't know because there hasn't really been any decisions exploring this issue. Um, you know, if you're an employer and you're saying, look, I can't pay you, uh, you know, $150,000 as a senior manager anymore. But what we do have is a more junior managerial position where, you know, your responsibilities are diminished, your, your, um, you know, the reporting structure changes and we're reducing your salary by 50 grand, but Hey, at least we're keeping you employed. Right. I mean, is a court going to say, well, yeah, that that's a constructive dismissal and you owe that employee, you know, um, wrongful dismissal damages. I, I mean, I, I don't know. The principle remains the same. You would think arguably that yes, they would be entitled to wrongful dismissal damages because it is a constructive dismissal, but we really, we just, we don't know precisely what sort of leeway courts are going to give employers given the, the just unprecedented circumstances we're dealing with. So under normal times, yeah, it would be a little more straightforward, but in this case, in your example, if you're assigned to be a, a janitor, that could be looked upon as sort of an extraordinary uh, reach to try and keep you with the company a sort of good, good, um, a good intention there. But I feel like it does boil down to intentions because obviously there's, you know, reassigning you and reducing your salary and trying to keep you on, um, as, as going the extra mile. And then there's, there's the ones where they know that you're going to say no and leave, which is the intention in the first place. But yeah, how do you determine what that intention is? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think any court in any court in the land is going to say, you know, a, a company who's, who changes an employee's position from senior manager to janitor. Oh yeah. That's, that's an, an extreme okay thing to do. That, that's, that's an, an extreme okay case to do. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's these sort of grayer areas where it gets, it gets sort of questionable. And also again, that alteration has to be fundamental, right? So if your employer says, we're going to have to cut your salary, by, you know, 5% because we're undergoing some significant financial hardship, that's not a constructive dismissal. The likelihood that a court's going to take that position is highly unlikely, particularly given the unprecedented circumstances, right? So again, it really does have to be something fundamental. Just because your employer unilaterally lowers your salary, um, that doesn't by definition mean it's a constructive dismissal. 
Also, what's sort of interesting, Cam, is this idea of the duty to mitigate. And your duty to mitigate your damages is really just a fancy legal way of saying that if you're terminated as an employee, you have an obligation to go out and try and find another job and mitigate those damages. So in most sort of constructive dismissal situations, even if it's a constructive dismissal, even if you sit down with a lawyer and a lawyer says, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. This is a fundamental alteration of your employment terms. No doubt about it. You've been constructively dismissed. In most cases, that employee still would have to continue to show up to work every day and sue for constructive dismissal. Because if they don't, they could be perceived as failing to mitigate their damages, right? A position continues to be available to them by the company. And if they rejected that position and didn't come into work entirely, they could be construed as failing to mitigate their damages. Hang on, hang on. Something that a lot of employees forget and they just outright quit and walk away and they can suffer some damages okay. for doing that. So you're saying if, 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 if your employer um, does demote you or reduce your salary um, and then you go to a lawyer and the lawyer says, yeah, that's constructive dismissal and you can sue for that uh, until that gets started, you have to accept the demotion or the lower salary and work through that while this battle goes on in the background. Is that correct? Correct. Because in failing to do so, it could be construed as you as the right. employee failing to mitigate your damages, failing to go out and try and find another position to mitigate the damages that you have suffered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I guess I'm a little unclear about what employers are allowed to do in terms of demotions and, and pay cuts under normal times, because I know that there's a lot of restrictions around whether you can dismiss somebody and the reasons that you can dismiss somebody. And it's not always very black and white. Um, but the, the, no, the it's, idea it's, of, it's a, often, it, yeah, it's almost never black and white, but the idea what of I mean, demotion, what I can tell you, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. I was just say the idea of a demotion or a, or a, or a pay cut, like that's very difficult news to give to somebody. And, uh, I could provoke all kinds of different reactions. And I know that it's a a big step for a company to take in many cases. And, you know, what are they allowed to do? What do the regulations say, at least in a broad context? Yeah. Again, you know, it's always in getting very specific. It can be difficult because it's going to determine largely in the, in, in, in the jurisdiction that you're, you're, you're addressing or dealing with. But again, generally speaking and in quote unquote normal circumstances. Yeah. I mean, an employer has the right to modify the terms of employment with an employee. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that that's within reason. It's when that modification is so fundamental, it's so extreme that it can't possibly be construed as anything other than fundamental. That's when employers run into trouble. So again, like as we discussed, if we're talking about an employer saying, hey, look, we're undergoing some financial hardship. We've got to cut your pay by 5%. We've got to reduce your hours, maybe five hours a week. That's not a fundamental alteration of the employment terms. That's not something that would typically attract um, damages from a court. And, and again, where things are going to get just more complicated in a COVID context is are employers going to be given even further leeway in that regard? So, you know, where maybe a 5% reduction in pay under normal circumstances would be acceptable under a COVID context is, you know, is a 25% reduction in pay 
going to be deemed to be acceptable. I mean, I don't, I don't know. These are the sort of situations that are going to be really, really interesting to examine. But what I, what I want to get at is from an employee's perspective, if your employer is recalling you to work, and I know this is happening across the country, it's happening in the United States, it's happening in countries all around the world as they, as they try to reopen and get people back to work. Um, you know, at least in Canada, uh, constructive dismissal principles in the United Kingdom are, are similar to what we have here in the United States. Things work a little bit differently. I don't even, we're, we're not even going to touch on that. Um, but that if you believe that your employer is bringing you back and saying, well, hey, you know, it's tough times and um, we're going to have to cut your pay by 50% and dramatically reduce your, 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 your job description and your role within the company, sit down with a lawyer and have 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 a talk and get a sense of have I been been constructively dismissed? Is this something I'm prepared to agree to? Um, where do I stand vis-a-vis my employer and and what's going on? Okay, that's good advice uh, for employees. Obviously, if they find themselves in that situation, but let's flip it a little bit for the employer. So, if there's somebody out there running a small business or even um, you know a senior manager in a larger company that's looking at their budget and looking at their headcounts and going, you know this we need to make some pretty big changes here to cope with the reality. How do employers approach this to make sure that they are not sort of constructively dismissing somebody? Yeah. Well, Hey, great, great question. Certainly something I'm, I'm dealing with, with a, with a number of clients right now. Um, I mean, look, the reality is, is that most companies are having to lay employees off and terminate them on a, on a permanent mm-hmm. basis. You know, there may be some, some leeway in terms of temporary layoff provisions, which allow employers to temporarily lay those employees off without having to pay them to until they're able to get back on their feet. That can be a way to avoid having to permanently, um, terminate employees or modify terms of employment. But again, you know, I think employers are having to make some tough decisions. And for a lot of employers, you know, they also don't have the luxury of hindsight. And this is something to think about too, that a couple months down the road after employers make these decisions or a year down the road, if an employee sues and it's put before a court, you know, that the court and a judge and the lawyers arguing the cases, they have the luxury of hindsight and ability to reflect on the decision that's been made. A lot of employers don't have that luxury right now. They're having to make snap decisions Mm -hmm. so they can stay afloat. So they don't go under. So, you know, a lot of employers are, are making these tough decisions. Now they're saying, look, yes, this may be a constructive dismissal, but we don't have a choice. So either come back and it's at a, you know, a 30 or 40% wage cut because that's all we can afford. um, Or don't, don't come back at all. If you want to sue us for constructive dismissal, Hey, feel free. We'll cross that bridge if and when we come to it. And a lot of employers are, are, that's the call that they're having to make right now. Right. And this is just something that I think is going to be a lot more common too uh, in the months ahead. I mean, I, I still think we're closer to the beginning of this than the end. I mean, especially in the United States, there's so many more months of working this out to happen. Uh, and I think a lot of more businesses are going to find themselves in trouble. And, and these are conversations, yes, that I guess employees for sure, if they find themselves in this situation, will need to talk to talk to a lawyer. 
Yeah, absolutely. And just one one last point to sort of go over, Cam, because we've sort of talked about constructive dismissal in the context of, you know, somebody altering the employment terms. But this can also occur in situations where an employee has been harassed or discriminated against um, or has been subjected to a toxic work environment where, you know, the the environment is so reprehensible and so so just, you know, awful for the employee to have to be subjected to on a day-to-day basis that the employee can argue that there was a fundamental alteration of the employment terms because obviously no employee starts at a company um, and contracts with an employer to come to an environment where they're discriminated against or harassed. So in those situations, an employee can also assert constructive dismissal. And they have a similar principle in the United States actually around this as well. Um, that if the environment is so intolerable, the employee can quit and assert constructive dismissal. And unlike the other situation we talked about, Cam, an employee doesn't have that duty to mitigate in this circumstance. No court is going to say, well, hey, you should have continued to show yeah, up. Keep going to that. Uh, to be harassed yeah, and discriminated against. Uh-huh. Exactly. Until the court and until we, we, we figured out what the what the lay of the land was. So that's something important for employees to consider as well. You and I, I think that's probably not well known. I mean, it's the first time I've come across that. I mean, obviously, we know that if you're in an environment where you're harassed by somebody, that's something that you can you can raise. But I mean, people in toxic workplaces, and I think there's a lot of them out there. It's good for them to know this, that they don't have to go to a place uh, that where they are facing harassment or discrimination or who knows what, uh, that they can talk to a lawyer. So, so yeah, I definitely think that's good, good practical advice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and again, this is, this is, this is pretty broad. This isn't just a Canadian thing. Uh, you know, in the U S it's, it's the language is a little bit different. Usually in the, in the U S it's referred to as a constructive termination or constructive discharge, but, and, you know, and some of the principles work a bit differently, but fundamentally the idea is the same that you don't have to continue to show up to work every day if you're being discriminated against or harassed or working in a toxic work environment, and you can be entitled to wrongful dismissal damages accordingly. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. You and I'm glad you brought up toxic workplaces because uh, that ties in very nicely with where I'm going to go today. Um, because I've, I, I, I want to discuss something that is a little off the beaten track. And uh, we're going to go to Hollywood for uh, quite the crisis that's unfolding uh, in public relations with uh, one of Hollywood's probably uh, biggest stars, or at least biggest TV stars. And that's Ellen DeGeneres. And I think you and you're probably aware that uh, she's under the gun a little bit right now. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of the some of the press around the story. It's very interesting. I think all of our listeners will know Ellen DeGeneres, but just in case you don't, uh, she's a, a very popular uh, TV daytime talk show host. Uh, she has a lot of guests on throughout the show. She does a lot of dancing on the show or used to. Uh, and her phrase, the show slogan is be kind. Um, and, you know, she, she is very, very personable. And the show has been running for 17 years. Um, and uh She's involved in a, in a same-sex marriage, so it's also been a bit of a breakthrough for LGBTQ people um, on television. 
So this is was going along fine for a very long time until this spring. And uh, it got worse for Ellen in uh, the early part of the year when a comedian named Kevin Porter throws, threw something out on Twitter. And he wrote, right now, we all need a little kindness, you know, like Ellen DeGeneres always talks about. She's also notoriously one of the meanest people alive. Respond to this with the most insane stories you've heard about Ellen being mean, and I'll match everyone with $2 to the LA Food Bank. And I believe he posted this in March. It was February or March this year on Twitter. He got more than a thousand responses. Some of them uh, were from people who claim to have either worked at the show or been a guest or been involved with guests on the show. Um, You know, one of the responses was, and this is a quote, she has a sensitive nose, so everyone must chew gum from a bowl outside of her office before talking to her. And if she thinks you smell that day, you have to go home and shower. Another one, a server who served Ellen and her wife, Portia de Rossi, at lunch shared that Ellen wrote a letter to the owner of the restaurant and complained about her chipped nail polish. Not that it was on her plate, but that it was just on her hand. And there was also, I mean, it's a long list. Obviously I'm not gonna go through them all, but there's concerns about, you know, there was a, there was a barbecue that was uh, in the back that Ellen shut down because she doesn't eat meat and she didn't want anyone else to eat meat. And and another one that I think is worth mentioning from a a stand-up comedian, Josh Levesque, who wrote, quote, Another friend of mine was a PA on her show, and when Russell Brand came into the employee break area to chat with the crew and hang out, Ellen came in and got mad at him, saying he didn't have to interact with these people. That's why guests have their own area backstage. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah, well, um, you know, I... I've I've seen <laughs> this stuff before, Cam. Doing doing what I do yeah. for a living. Well, um, yeah. There's more. It's, there's okay, more. Keep there's going. More. Uh, so after this Twitter, uh, all these comments came in, and and I have to say, you and I do recall you and I way back in the day used to listen to Adam Carolla on on radio, uh, who now has his own podcast. And I have listened to his podcast. I don't listen to it much anymore. But when he started podcasting, I listened quite a bit. And he regularly brought up Ellen as one of the meanest people in show business. And he said the the distance from her on-air persona to her real self was among the widest of any celebrities that he had ever met. So this was something that I think was circulating around that people knew of, uh, but it wasn't wasn't public knowledge yet. Anyway, after the uh, after the many tweets came in, there were started there started to be other stories emerge. I mean, you see how this happens, even in cases like Harvey Weinstein. Once one or two people start coming forward, uh, you know, the the avalanche can can begin to happen. In April, and this is during COVID nineteen, Ellen uh, did her show from her palatial estate in California, and she described staying at home during the pandemic like being in prison, which naturally upset quite a few people, considering the size of her home and where it is in California. Right. So whoops. And at the same time, you know, COVID has always been spreading through the, the, the system in the United States. And so a lot of prisoners have actually died from, from, from the disease. Um, That obviously led to more stories emerging, including from a man who was assigned to be her bodyguard at the 2014 Oscars. And he said that she was the coldest celebrity he ever protected. She did not say hi to him or look at him at all the entire time. BuzzFeed then really dug into this. And this was, I think, the, the, the first big breakthrough uh, in this story. Uh, they published an article that talked to uh, a lot of former staff and one current staff um, who talked about the bullying, the sexual harassment, and the racism in the workplace environment. Now, none of these pertain to Ellen 
personally. Uh, there was a lot of criticism of the producers of the show, the editors, those involved in the control room during the show, uh, that they used yeah, bullying and intimidation uh, and things like that and were very inappropriate to some of the staff um, during the show and even outside uh, of show hours. That led to Ellen uh, finally speaking about this and addressing it head on. So Ewan, this is the first time I think our podcast is ever going to throw to Inside Edition, <laughs> but uh, here's what happened when <laughs> Ellen decided to speak. Hi, everybody. Ellen DeGeneres is breaking her silence today, apologizing for those bombshell accusations about a toxic work culture at her show. Hey, everybody, it's Ellen. The letter to her staff begins. She writes that she wanted The Ellen Show to be a place of happiness where no one would ever raise their voice and everyone would be treated with respect. Obviously, something changed, and I am disappointed to learn that this has not been the case. And for that, I am sorry. My name is on the show and everything we do, and I take responsibility for that. But she also blames others for the scandal that's threatening her queen of nice reputation. I've not been able to stay on top of everything and relied on others to do their jobs as they knew I'd want them done. Clearly, some didn't. That will now change. Just hours after Ellen's apology, a new report by BuzzFeed detailed more allegations against the show. The BuzzFeed article paints a disturbing picture of what junior staffers say it's like at The Ellen Show, which is shot here at Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank. Executive producer Ed Glavin is also said to have had a button underneath his desk which he used to intimidate employees by remotely shutting his office door during meetings. Usually, according to these former employees, this was what they call an intimidation tactic to induce fear. BuzzFeed's like Christy Lee Andoli spoke to former employees who accused Glavin of being handsy with women in workspaces like the control room, rubbing their shoulders and touching them on their lower waist. The former employees who I spoke to said that they experienced and witnessed a range of sexual harassment, sexual misconduct um, from top executive producer Ed Glavin and filtered and permeated throughout the culture. Glavin has reportedly been fired. The $50 million a year queen of daytime television is not accused of any misconduct herself. Now the question is, was she in the dark or did she turn a blind eye? Today, actor Brad Garrett tweeted an eye-opening response to the scandal. Sorry, but it does come from the top at The Ellen Show. No more than one who were treated horribly by her. Common knowledge. Garrett should know. He's appeared on the show as a guest six times. Is it your sense that some of these former employees don't believe that Ellen was unaware of these allegations? Yes. Former employees who I spoke to said that they find it hard to believe Ellen doesn't know the full scope of what goes on behind the scenes if everybody else knows. So you can see there, Ewan, that um, it got quite bad. And, you know, Ellen did issue that statement to her staff, which was mentioned off the top of that clip, um, that, that really sort of not, not apologized, but said she would do better and that she would make sure that the, the workplace is, is, is welcoming and inclusive. And, you know, from a PR perspective, the worst thing happened after that, which is another BuzzFeed article published right after with new allegations. And so that immediately overshadowed uh, her message to staff um, and, you know, basically drew a whole bunch of new negative attention uh, to the story. Um, so 
after that, there was even more digging into this, uh, including some of the interviews she had in the past. So Warner Media, which 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 does own the show, has launched an investigation into this. Um, but you know, when people started looking in the past, there were some kind of times where. Uh, some of her behavior was questioned. Uh, and I'm going to play one last clip here. This is uh, Dakota Johnson, the actor who, from Fifty Shades of Grey, who appeared on Ellen in December. And have a listen to this interaction, which gets a little bit awkward. It's good to see you. Happy it's belated you birthday. Too. When was your birthday? It was October 4th. October 4th. <laughs> you turned 30. I did. And um, how was the party? I wasn't invited. <laughs> Actually, no, that's not the truth, Ellen. You were invited. Last year, no, last time I was on the show, last year, you gave me a bunch of about not inviting you, but I didn't even know you wanted to be invited. Well, who didn't want to be invited to a party? Well, I didn't even know you liked me. (laughs) Of course I like you. You knew I liked you. You've been on the show many times, and and don't I show like? Yeah. Yeah. But I did invite you, and you didn't come. So. This time you invited me? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. How do you know? I don't think so. Ask everybody. <laughs> Ask Jonathan, your producer. Who okay. said you were? I yeah, was invited? Right Why didn't I go? I don't know. Was it... Was it, it oh, yeah, I had that thing. Um, <laughs> Again, very, very awkward in how that was played out. If you see the video of it, it's also quite, quite awkward. So I will, I will put a, a link in the show notes. So you and basically here we have um, Ellen really under the gun, a lot of statements, a lot of stories coming out over time. Uh, very embarrassing. You've got articles leaking out. And I think, you know, from a PR angle, this is, this is a really bad case because the worst thing that can happen is this to drip out week by week and to stay in the public's, public's consciousness as it has for the last several months. Uh, that's when something can become very damaging. I think it is much better for everything to come out at once, face the music, get it all out, and then move on immediately. Try and push things forward and move out of the crisis. So, Basically, there's a couple of uh, advice, and there was a great article on, on Vice itself uh, about the PR professionals that may be working on this and how what, what the best practice is when there's a personal uh, scandal like this. And I think some of these are, are, are quite interesting bits of advice. And, and the first one is one that we do use a lot in, in PR, which is validators. We call them validators, third parties, people that are not a direct employee of the company, for instance, if it's a company making announcement um, or a per- person you know, directly in someone's family or things like that, but someone who can speak about you in a positive way. So since this broke, Katy Perry, Diane Keaton, and Alec Baldwin have all issued statements supporting Ellen. And what's interesting to note there is that this was probably orchestrated. Uh, the article in Vice does indicate that it probably was, just because it looks like something that you would do as part of a campaign uh, to, to, to sort of line these things up. To, to put out some positive information. And then the second one you and I think is really big is, is dig through the closet. This is the most difficult thing for people to face. And, you know, CEOs are often in this situation too. If, if there's some leak or some scandal or somebody saw something or is accusing something, the best thing you can do is sit down with that person and have them go through their behavior. So you, you know, what's coming, you know, what might come. 
And so they do recommend that Ellen sit down with, with, with a PR person uh, or an agency and basically try and remember the cases where she thinks she might have treated somebody poorly and they may speak out because it enables them to prepare if this happens and also enables them in some cases to reach out to these people in advance and apologize and, and try and show some contrition um, so then they won't speak out. So that's an, another really important part. Well, it, and it sounds like, you know, it, the apology from Ellen herself um, wasn't really much of an apology. No, she didn't say sorry. <laughs> and, and yeah. my, I mean, my takeaway, my takeaway from that is, wow, this stuff's really bad. Uh, I'm sorry, but I didn't really know it was going on. And and that, you know, that's always going to be a difficult pill for the public to swallow that you didn't really have any sense as to what was going on in your own house, right? Yes, that is a big problem. There's a couple more pieces of advice here I'll get to as well. So the first one was validators. Yes, get people saying positive things. Dig through the closet so you can you can prepare for other things that might come out. And then the big one, you know, you and you just mentioned, she didn't really apologize. And you're right, she didn't. She put out a letter to her staff promising to do better. Um, but after the validators have spoken, after there's some some people standing up for her out there, doing a very, very public apology uh, and, a, and a sincere one, obviously, is important. And how to do this, there's a number of ways to do this. Uh, well, you know, one recommendation in the article really is devoting a whole show, you know, once her show comes back from its from its summer hiatus, to, to, to have a show where she does focus on this one subject. And she could potentially have guests on such as, you know, experts on maintaining a healthy workplace or even former employees on the air. Um, this is obviously very uncomfortable. I mean, when you when you propose this to an executive or to a person um, in any industry, this is not their instinct at all to, 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 to go through it in a public way. But it it does do a lot of good because it does allow you to put it behind you, air everything, put it behind you uh, and move on. It's hard for people to continue lingering on it um, after you've done this kind of big public apology. Right. So if I if I get your meaning, basically what you're saying is don't slap a Band-Aid on it. Let it bleed out entirely and try and get it to bleed out as quickly as possible um, before you, you start to patch things back up. That's a good way to look at it, actually. Let it bleed out as quickly as possible. I mean, I mentioned at the top having this drip, drip, drip week after week after week is, is the worst because it's it's slowly sinking the knife into her and her show. Uh, and it's very difficult to fight when it's coming this way. Uh, and so she's already been, I think, a little bit behind, uh, you know, on responding to this. And and even as of us recording this show, you and she, she still has not. Um, the other item is to meet with her employees, obviously. I mean, she sent them a letter. That's nice. Um, the letter was, you know, worded nicely. Uh, but she does need to show some some real sincerity here. And, you know, if she can meet with them one-on-one uh, to talk about, what her plans are first to apologize, but then number two, this is how show a plan for how that workplace is going to function and how the hierarchy is going to work and who's going to be in charge and what the expected behavior is. Uh, Because apology is one thing that's talking about the past, but you have to show the future as well. You have to show how it's going to work and why it's going to be better and what the plan is to prove that you've thought about it, that you've really put some time and effort into it. So that's, that's obviously a big one. Um, And the last one, obviously in, in this case, you know, going on other talk shows. It's probably probably not an advisable thing to do right now, but after she has gone through these other things, um, 
I, I mean, my own opinion is I wouldn't want to dwell on it too much afterwards. So once, once the apology is done and you've put the spotlight on it, and like you say, tried to, to bleed it all out, um, you would like to move on at that point. If there's still discussions about it or, and in many cases, this can turn into a positive thing. I mean, if, if, if she does this very well, uh, it can be viewed, uh, you know, in a positive light by people. And if that's the case, then talking about another show, sort of her own personal journey, you know, and, uh, and going through that process can be, can be beneficial as well. So those are, those are some of the big, big ways to try and tackle this kind of thing. Well, the one thing that you, you sort of opened with Cam, that idea of the validators, that's, that's really, I'd never sort of heard it articulated as such. It makes perfect sense. And it's certainly something you see often in these sort, sorts of uh, occurrences. What I think is, is somewhat telling is who the validators are. And again, I don't, I don't work in PR, but as someone who certainly had to deal from the employer side and the employee side um, with toxic workplaces it strikes me that the opinion, you know, I, I also saw Jay Leno tweeted something out of, you know, I've known Ellen for 40 years and she's always been wonderful and blah, 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 that, you know, celebrities may not be the best people to be your validators in this particular situation. I understand that they have the greatest reach by nature of their celebrity. However, to suggest that, you know, a Jay Leno or a Katy Perry can speak to the day to day work environment on the Ellen show. I mean, that's not really even based in any sense of reality. I would think that the value from a media perspective would be to line up a series of validators of individuals that work within the company or for, for the show itself and, and, and a variety of roles, you know, lower level employees, mid-level employees, upper management employees, line them up and have them talk about what a wonderful place it is, how nurturing and supportive Ellen has always been and the management structure, blah, 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 blah. That's validation that I think actually has some merit. I, I just don't really see the value in lining up a bunch of celebrities who can't really speak to the workplace culture of the show. And the interesting part there, Ewan, is no one's really accusing her of treating celebrities poorly. <laughs> that's not that's not the issue here. And so you make a very good point, and I think your instinct is very bang on in this case. It's much more valuable for the people who actually work there day to day to come out and say, actually, you know, this stuff is very minor, or it's not nearly as bad as people have said, or she's been very helpful, she's been a mentor to me. You know, there are a number of ways to try and get those people out, because you're right, this... I, I don't think celebrities have no value speaking out because I think in the culture that we've got in the United States anyway, that sometimes their words do carry some weight. Uh, and I think that is true. So I think it's, it's fine for the celebrities to do it as well, but I do think it's kind of missing the point. And the point is that, she, you know, she is, she has become kind of uh, classist for lack of a better term where, you know, she's, she's looking down upon the people who are beneath her. And so you would want those people to come out and say, this isn't true, or she has been great because that addresses it uh, uh, more head on, um, on the validator thing in general. Um, it is something that companies use. I think it's a bit harder for companies to do, but you know, when I worked in government is when, when I used it a lot and I was, uh, in communications uh, for, for a provincial government in Canada. And when there were cases of, 
you know, investments in the community or, or, or changes to the community. You didn't want to just announce that from the government and congratulate yourself on the good work. You wanted to have small businesses and you wanted to have, you know, chambers of commerce maybe, or whoever it might be to come out and say, yeah, this is really helping us. This is a very good move uh, because that matters. That, that, that is much more powerful hearing that from, from another party um, rather than yourself. And, and you know what companies do, and you, you probably know this, but it's, 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 it's good for, for, for others to do as well is to line up these validators um, even when the media call you. So if the media call me and I'm working at a company um, and they want to ask about something that we've done, I can actually point them to, hey, why don't you give this person a call? Because they can sort of tell it, tell it to you from their perspective. And I've already vetted this in advance. I've already talked to that person and figured out what they're going to say. Um, and then point the reporter over to that person to do that interview. And I mean, you can do this even in a sort of informal way. It's not that I necessarily go to the validator and say, hey, can you speak for us to the media to praise us? Um, that's probably a bit too blunt, although that does happen too. But even just knowing that somebody is very supportive of you or your company or your investment or your initiative, whatever it might be, um, you can point them over there to talk if they're okay to talk to media. And it's it's a powerful way to, to, to manage this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I think another very, very easy, you know, strategy that the company or the business or the, you know, the show in Ellen's case can employ is conducting workplace investigations. I mean, these have become more and more common, certainly, certainly in Canada, um, where you do have allegations of a toxic work environment or harassment. And sometimes, sometimes senior executives, they don't know what's going on at the ground level. And the smartest thing that you can do is you bring in an independent third-party investigator who can sit down with employees and can really dig in and get a sense of what the workplace culture is actually like and learn if there is any merit to these allegations. And then you can produce a report at the end of the day that shows what's going on with proposed solutions, whether there's any individuals or employees who are contributing to that toxic work environment, assuming one exists, Um, disciplinary measures for those employees. I mean, all of this stuff can be looked at and, um, and clarified by way of, of a good workplace investigation with a good workplace investigator. I mean, that would absolutely be something that I would want, or I would be recommending to, to Ellen or to the senior executives, um, that work on the show, Uh, you know, bring in somebody who's independent to show that you're serious about getting to the bottom of this and introducing remedies to resolve the issue. I mean, dealing with the press is one thing, but you've got to get your house in order, right? And how do you get your house in order without knowing what's going on? Um, I mean, this sort of strikes me as a, as a perfect scenario for a workplace investigation. You know, I'm sure you're aware of this too. I think companies can be loath to do this uh, because they either don't know what's there or they do know what's there and it's catastrophically bad. And I think uh, you're right. I think a a best practice for sure is to bring in an independent investigator and and give them um, carte blanche to talk to whomever they need to talk to and put a report together. I agree. That's That's the right way to manage it. I think in reality, that's kind of difficult to do in many cases, depending on 
you know, what the circumstances are and what has happened there. I know that Warner Media uh, has launched an internal investigation. I think an external one would be much better, uh, but an internal one is a start. And I think sometimes, again, the cynic in me is if they find that there's not a lot of really serious stuff there, they may then bring in an outside investigator to prove that. But if they find something that's really quite awful, I think maybe the they, they have to make a judgment call on on how to manage that from communications and a business angle too, because at the end of the day, you and there's already talk of this sinking the show that this could end the show. And even that Ellen just doesn't, she feels beaten down enough by this, that she just doesn't want to do it anymore. And so you're dealing with a lot of people's jobs and a lot of people's lives. And so there's a lot at stake at, at this. Um, and it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy to, to manage as you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, these are all these are all fair points. I just I don't like the idea of um, letting the media determine how this is going to play out for a business. And as you know, as a, as an executive at a business, I would want to know what's going on at the ground level because the larger the company, the larger the business, the more difficult it is to know what's going on at the ground level and what your workplace culture is like. So yeah, I mean, could you learn some awful and dark truths about your business that you didn't want to know about? Absolutely. But wouldn't you rather have that information at your disposal, notably being presented to you from someone who doesn't have an agenda on the issue so that you can then remedy the issue from the ground up. You can introduce policies, you can get rid of any bad blood that exists Um, There's a key assumption, though, I think, in what you're saying, which is that the executive or the owner or the CEO is at arm's length, because in that case, I completely agree with you there. They could be out of touch with what's happening on the ground and doing this would enable them to find out, get some intelligence of what the workplace is like. I think, though, in this case, that perhaps either Ellen was complicit in some of this or she was aware of a lot of it in advance. And I think that would probably prompt her not to want to have someone come in and take a look at it. I think Warner would have to do so. But again, Warner looks at it and goes, this is a person that they're paying 50, 50 million dollars a year. Um, you know, is, is, do we want to do this or not? And I still think that they should, because to me, if there's something even more awful happening there, it will come out anyway. And usually, you know, on this sort of thing, even from a communications angle, it's better to just shine the light on everything at once and get it out, as we talked about. Um, but but these are the discussions that have to happen, have to have to happen behind the scenes. And well, I completely agree with your advice, and I would say the same. I think in the day to day reality, depending on people's involvement at the higher levels, that m- just might not happen. Fair enough. Um, but I, you know, to your point, it's going to come out one way or the other, um, whether on your terms or, or someone else's. So you, you best get to the bottom of it as soon as you possibly can. Well said. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in law podcast. All right, Ewan, what have you got on the, uh, on the check this out recommendation pile today? Well, I read a great article in The New Yorker that I wanted to, to share. The title is Red Lobster is Not Essential. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it's it, it's an article by uh, by Zachary Zimmerman. And the the story is about his mother who waits tables at a Red Lobster in South Carolina for two dollars and 13 cents per hour plus tips. Jeez. 
Yeah. Um, in fact, his mother has actually been a server at Red Lobster in South Carolina since Ronald Reagan was the president. <laughs> um, so she's, yeah, suffice it to say, she's been there a very, very long time. And, you know, the, the article sort of explores some of the risks that she's assuming in going back to work um, as a result of South Carolina's sort of aggressive reopening plan. And that, you know, it highlights this issue, Cam, that work environments that are are really, really, really being affected, they're being affected among the most precarious of workers, the most precarious of employees, individuals like Miss Zimmerman in this case, who, you know, doesn't really have a choice. When you're earning $2.13 an hour plus tips, you have to go back to work. And you can't really afford to say, well, it's not safe for me to go back to work. And I'm concerned um, for my for my well-being in, in a COVID climate. These individuals, the, these are not options that, that they have. And we've seen all kinds of examples um, uh, in businesses across North America where the most compromised, the most exposed, the most precarious of workers are faced with very, very tough decisions where they're having to put their financial well-being ahead of their own health and safety. And that is a really, really, really sad reality that um, a, a lot of people are facing right now. You know, Ewan, it's good you brought this up too, because I, I actually read an article this week that I did not have on my list to recommend. But now that you raised this, it has reminded me of it. And it's really about the situation the U.S. finds itself in. And it relates to this, that people are in a situation now, even in a, in a deadly global pandemic, that they're having to go to work these jobs because of financial considerations. Um, and um, it's actually, it was an article in The Atlantic, because I haven't looked it up, I didn't plan on talking about it, I don't have the, even the title, uh, but it's basically an excerpt from a new book that looks at how uh, it's called Evil Geniuses, and it looks at sort of the 50-year uh, path from the New Deal up to where we are today, where the wealth gap has widened and labor unions have been weakened, uh, and we see you know a, a one or two percent at the top who have most of the most of the wealth and the damage that that's caused. And I think th what you're talking about is a result of that. And if, if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that the essential workers who, who were declaring essential are some of the, the, the workers with the least amount of pay. And, um, you know, that's, that's not a good situation to be in. So, yeah, I, I will read that and I'll also uh, link to the article that I mentioned as well. Great. Uh, and, the, you know, the only other thing I wanted to mention, Cam, is that um, today is the International Day of World's Indigenous Peoples. Um, just something to be conscious of, to, to think about. And I saw actually a really, a really interesting tweet that I, I can change or I, I should share talking about why we use the term indigenous instead of aboriginal. And as I, as I learned today, the word aboriginal is an English word, but the ab in aboriginal is a Latin prefix that means away from or not. So in that sense, Aboriginal can actually mean not original, mm -hmm. which is obviously not exactly what the term is, is trying to convey. Anyway, yeah, so I just opposite. wanted to throw that out there as well. Okay, cool. 
two things I had to mention. One, um, it's an article in the, in the New York Times called After Atomic Bombings, These Photographers Worked Under Mushroom Clouds. And this is something I can't even remember how it crossed my desk. But once I started reading it and looking at the photos, it was mesmerizing. And it does talk about how after the war in, uh, in Japan, sharing photos of the damage caused by the nuclear blasts in Nagasaki and Hiroshima were not allowed to be shown in Japan, that the U.S. occupiers at that time basically outlawed any, any photos from being shared. So a lot of those photos were, were, were kept and saved and tried to keep safe. And when the American occupation ended, some of those photos uh, came out a little bit. But even in the U.S. today, when there's uh, articles in textbooks or elsewhere about the bombings, they focus on the mushroom cloud and the Enola Gay and things like that, not the photos on the ground of Japanese people, of hospitals, of destroyed cities and roads and, and farms and things like that. Um, but this collection of photos is being published in a new book, and it's just horrific. Uh, I mean, you look at this, especially now, as we're seeing, you know, we talked off the top of the show, uh, at, at relations deteriorating uh, around the world. It's been a difficult time, I think. Um, and there are some, you know, there's, there's some, some war drums being beaten at the moment. And uh, this is a reminder of the damage, the horror, the terror uh, that can come from war involving nuclear weapons. And it's, it's definitely um, something I definitely recommend people take a look at. I'm glad you brought this up, Cam, because I, last weekend in particular, I saw so many fantastic articles um, about the anniversary of the bombing of, of Hiroshima and, and, and Nagasaki and talking about non-proliferation treaties and where we're going in terms of nuclear armaments around the world. Um, just there's so much to dig into to dig into here. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is one of those, one of those moments where we, we have to sort of refer to that great old adage of, you know, those who, who forget their history are deemed to repeat it. Yeah. I, it, it's just, just crazy. And some of the photo spreads I, I saw as well, to your point, um, everything was always fixated on, on the mushroom cloud, but it's really, and, and as, and as iconic, um, if that's really a word we should use in this context of, of that image, that image is, it's really the devastation on the ground that is just, I mean, it's just truly, it's, it's just jaw dropping. Right. And it's, it's nice that finally that part of the story is being explored and being told perhaps in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Absolutely. Uh, so I'll put a link in the last one I want to mention. This was a very late, uh, late edition. I actually listened to this today and it's, uh, going back to the, uh, WTF podcast with Mark Marin. Uh, and several weeks ago he had on Jim Carrey, the Canadian comedian. I am not a huge Jim Carrey fan. I know they're, they're out there. Um, I didn't follow his career particularly closely either, but I mean, I obviously know of him because he is Canadian. Uh, and so I'm somewhat familiar with, with the movies he's been in, in, in living color and things like that. But the interview between Marin and, and, and Carrie is 
absolutely excellent again. And it really goes into Jim's life as a kid and his parents. Uh, they lived in Ontario, Ewan, um, and some of the, the the hardships that he went through there. But then going down to California, and he 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 worked alongside you know Richard Pryor and Sam Kinison and um, Andrew Dice Clay as well. A number of stories from his career and his outlook on life. And I learned so many things about him that I did not know. Um, and he's so much more than sort of these sort of funny, goofy characters. Um, then some of the decisions he made in life actually are quite, quite inspiring. And he's restarted a couple of times, which takes, uh, takes a lot of courage, I think. So I really, really recommend this as well. I find the Mark Marin podcast can be hit or miss. I don't listen to all of them. It really depends who's on. And it also depends if I've listened to all the other podcasts in my queue. Um, uh, but but this one is one that I saved. I thought it was just an excellent interview, so highly recommended. Funny enough, Cam, I actually listened to it as well. Um, it, it is a very very it, it's a very interesting interview. Uh, it's a great example of where you know Marin sort of gets an interviewee to a place where he can pretty much ask them anything. Mm-hmm. You know, closer to toward the end of the episode where he he really starts um, you know touching on. Jim and alludes to sort of mental health issues. There's some 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 discussion around that, which I thought was was cool and and really worth exploring because you're right. I mean, the public persona of someone like Jim Carrey is often just this sort of zany, funny guy. And rarely do you get the opportunity to sort of explore the toll that that can take on a personality um, and on a person and their mental health. And and they're, you know, he speaks quite candidly about medications that he's been on medications Mm -hmm. that he may be on now um i i also thought it was a pretty a a pretty compelling interview and he's known these days for his artwork i mean i don't know if you follow on twitter you and but a lot of his artwork goes goes quite viral on there it's it's all political and i know that um he's taken some pretty pretty liberal political stands that have alienated some people so like that's all i've really known about him over the last four or five years is that he's this kind of recluse artist now (laughs) uh who's getting involved in in politics as a lot of people in, in hollywood do and even at the start of the interview, when he started talking about various things that he's involved in, I thought, yeah, he sounds, he sounds a bit sort of, um, outside of the norm <laughs> in some ways. Off his but, rocker. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly the term I was thinking of. But as, as the interview went on, uh, you get to know the man and you go, wow, he, he's actually, uh, he's got an incredible story, uh, and he's gone through a lot. So yeah, it was, it was one of the good ones. Yeah, he, he, he does. And I think one of the great takeaways for someone, whether you're interested in, in Jim Carrey and what he does or not, one of the great takeaways of, of the show, of the interview, is that he talks about on, and I think you, you briefly referenced it earlier, Cam, I think on, on about three different occasions where he failed miserably. Things didn't go his way. I think he talked about going on Carson for the first time and he felt he's or no, sorry, he was he did a he did a stand up bit and there was someone that was vetting him to potentially be a a guest on Carson and he fell flat. And rather than go to go to Carson, he went back to Canada and spent like took like two or three years off honing his craft before then going back and taking another stab at it. And I, I love when you hear stories like this, because I think there is often this, this preconceived notion that these sort of brilliant, zany, talented people were always brilliant, zany and talented, and that things just magically 
um, you know, the stars and planets aligned for them. And generally speaking, that is not the case. And it wasn't the case for Jim Carrey either. He failed miserably on a number of occasions, but he, you know, he picked himself back up. He worked, he honed his craft and then managed to get to that place that he always hoped he could get to. Yeah. And he ended up with a, a very, very successful career. So uh, yeah, there's good lessons in there for, for everyone. Those are all good points. Uh, anything else you win before we uh, bring this to a close? That's it, Cam. That's awesome. it. You know, just, uh, just like Jim Carrey, you know, you and I, we keep, keep doing this show every week. We're trying to hone <laughs> our own craft. Trying yeah. To, trying to get to a, get to a place where, where it's good. It's interesting. We're providing good content. So, um, you know, to our listeners, thank you for, for sticking with us, for giving us your time every week. Um, we're here, we're open to suggestions. Give us your feedback. If there's anything you want to hear, anything we can do, um, please let us know. We love doing the show. Um, and we love that you take the time to to listen and anybody that uh, the listeners recommend we talk to on the show uh you know we had um we had ed uh, siegel on last week and got tons of positive feedback about that i had several people message me uh, about that interview so yeah if there's people like that that you you think would be really good to talk to uh, and ask questions of please let us know because we're definitely uh, open to ideas that is it that is it we're going to close off uh, episode number 18 uh, so just before we go, a quick reminder, please follow us on social media if you can. It's PR Law Podcast is the name of our social media handle. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we're also on YouTube as well. So you can uh, subscribe to the podcast there. And I, I, I never mentioned SoundCloud, but we're, we're on SoundCloud as well. So you can find us there. Uh, and you can support us via Patreon through our website at PRLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. So another one in the books, Ewan. For you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. We will see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 